Hello and welcome to another episode of Clear for Takeoff. I'm your host, Gavin Rice, and I want to share what I've learned in aviation both on the job, off the job, and what I've encountered everywhere in between. As mentioned in the end of the last episode, I want to talk a little bit about descent planning. So what does that mean? Well, we sometimes have to answer the question, when do we start our descent? And this should seem pretty obvious as to why. I mean, after all, we when we go up, we must come down at some point. And ideally, we want to do so as efficiently as possible. And because if we're, if we're more efficient, we save time and fuel, which is, of course, very important. So to understand descents a little better, I'm going to bring it back to the basics of flying a, a piston aircraft and flying VFR, which stands for Visual Flight Rules. So when, when taking a, a small plane, for example, with some friends, uh, as I've done in the past, we go through the, the pre-flight planning process to, to choose the altitude that we're going to fly at based on uh, a, a multitude of different factors uh, to include uh, airspace, winds aloft, uh, engine performance, and weather, to name just a few. In the Cessna 172s I was flying, the, the sweet spot was right around four to 6,000 feet. This was easy enough to accomplish threading in and out of most airspaces and was very easy over flat terrain. But as you get into more mountainous areas, this altitude might have to be adjusted. I mean, you might have to cruise in an altitude of upwards of eight to maybe 12,000 feet just to ensure terrain clearance. In other words, not smash into any mountains. But regardless of the altitude we're at, we still have to determine when we start our descent. And so when flying VFR, which again, visually, visual flight rules, Commonly, when radar contact is available and air traffic control can offer their services, we'll ask for VFR flight following. And what this does is it keeps us in radar contact with air traffic control, and they will provide a separation from IFR, instrument flight rules traffic, and also some VFR traffic as well. They can be a very useful aid to verify the status of restricted airspaces, and they're also there in the event that we have an emergency. Because if, if we don't use VFR flight flying, we're not in radar contact, no one would really know if something is wrong because we'd only be a blip on secondary radar or maybe not even in anyone's radar coverage at all. But staying in contact with air traffic control, they, they give us a, a specific four-digit squawk code, which is a, a beacon specific to us. And so this way we are in radio contact during most, if not all, of the flight from point A to point B. So what does this have to do with descents? Well, when we are VFR, air traffic control won't necessarily give you any altitude restrictions. They might say sometimes like advise prior to any altitude changes, or sometimes they might uh, direct us to change our altitude due to conflicting traffic or airspace. But in many cases, particularly in the, the less complex airspaces, we'll be on our own when it comes to choosing our altitude with the small exception that the altitude might be an odd or an even thousand plus 500, which just has to do with the westerly versus easterly routing to keep traffic separated when they are going opposite directions. But when it comes time for us to descend, air traffic control is not going to instruct us when to start our descent. Uh, or at least it's not on their priority list. Their, their priority is the instrument traffic, uh, the, the IFR traffic, because they're on arrivals and getting set up for approaches and they have to be separated and, and those are, are those aircraft are getting instructed to descend. But when it comes to a, a VFR 
uh, aircraft that, that has flight following. It's called flight following for a reason. It's, it's more like air traffic control giving you any resources that you might need, but it's still up to you to start your descent. So how do we know when to start that descent? We use this very simple rule of thumb for beginning or, or choosing our descents, and this is referred to as the three to one rule. This means that for every nautical mile you are from your destination airport, you should be 300 times the mileage up to whatever cruising altitude you're at. So on a, on a one mile final, when you're getting ready to land, you should be at 300 feet above the airport elevation because one times 300 is obviously 300. At two miles, we should be at 600 feet. At three miles, 900 feet. Four miles, 1200 feet, and so on. You get the picture. Now, at many smaller airports, you will have to enter the traffic pattern on a downwind, which is the opposite direction that you are landing, or maybe you'll enter on a base, which is 90 degrees offset from the right or the left of your, your final landing direction to the runway. But that basic three to one rule will get you close enough to where you would only level off for a little while to maintain that traffic pattern altitude. So we'll, we'll typically, we'll still use the three to one rule, gauging the, the rough uh, mileage that you are from the airport. And at most airports, the, this altitude of, of a traffic pattern is a thousand feet above the field elevation. So uh, again, it will be pretty close to where you need to be. Also, quick side tangent. I hear this mistaken a lot by many, and that is confusing or combining the definitions of altitude versus elevation. So elevation is just the distance on land when you're standing on the ground uh, that is above the mean sea level. And mean sea level means the, the average global sea level. When you compare that to altitude, altitude is referring to being in the air and not on the ground. Elevation, it, it's the height. You know, the distance from, again, sea level to the, the top of the, the point you're standing on, so to speak. But altitude is the distance uh, you are in the air. And does that distance refer to the sea level or to the ground? Well, it depends. When we refer to our height above the ground in the air, this is called absolute altitude, which, uh, again, is the distance you currently are above the ground right below you. And that that number will change, that, that distance will change depending on the terrain or, or, rightly, we can say here, elevation that you are flying over. The other kind of altitude is true altitude, and this refers to the distance the aircraft is above mean sea level. So when we are flying, we're always referencing our true altitude so that everyone, no matter where you're flying, you're always referencing an altitude to the mean sea level. So, you know, you could be flying over Denver, uh, which is uh, the airport elevation in, in Denver is about 5,000 feet. And in order to fly above Denver, you'd need to be, I don't know, six, seven, eight thousand 8,000 feet, right, to stay above the airport. But that means you're only going to be, let's say you're at 6,000 feet, you're only going to be 1,000 feet above the airport at 6,000 feet above sea level versus you could be flying in over New York City. And maybe you're flying up the Hudson River at 6,000 feet. Well, you are 6,000 feet above sea level, and it also corresponds to being roughly 6,000 feet above mean sea level because the greater New York City area is pretty much at mean sea level. So anytime we need to reference an altitude above the ground, it's, it's usually relating to the airport we are landing at. Uh, so we'll, we'll say such and such feet above field elevation to, to make that distinction. We're not really paying attention to 
the actual distance we are over the ground. Granted, in, in pre-flight planning, you know, when we're choosing our altitude, that's one of the first things we have to pick uh, is, is to ensure terrain clearance and make sure we're not going to fly into any hills or anything like that. But when we're actively flying, we're always referencing our true altitude. Again, the, 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 the height above mean sea level. So let's use an example to help kind of better understand this going from point A to point B. Let's say we're, we're flying from New Haven, Connecticut to Syracuse, New York. So we take off from New Haven, which has a field elevation of 13 feet, so it's essentially sea level, and we decide to cruise at an altitude of 6,500 feet. We chose that altitude to give us some more terrain clearance over the Adirondack Mountains, and also maybe to take advantage of, of less of a headwind going westerly. As we make our way closer to Syracuse, we have to start thinking about a descent. And we see that the airport field elevation is 421 feet, so let's just round that up to a nicer number of 500 feet. Therefore, we have to go from our cruising altitude of 6,500 feet down to 500 feet to our touchdown. That's a total of 6,000 feet that we need to lose. So when should we start our descent? Let's try applying that 3 to 1 rule. That starting number we have is, is again, the 6,000 feet to lose. So we take 6,000 and divide it by the 300 feet per mile, which gives us, oh, maybe that's some hard math. So let's kind of make it easier and chop off some of those zeros. Let's make it 60 divided by three. Oh, that's easier to work with. We get a number of 20. So what does this mean? Well, it means that at 20 miles away from the airport, if we were to use the three to one rule where we lose 300 feet every one nautical mile, we will get a nice even descent all the way down to the field. And because of the, the beauty of geometry, this equates to roughly a descent angle of 3 degrees. It's actually like 2.8 something, but it's, it's close enough to 3 degrees where in terms of thinking of things mathematically, the 3 to 1 rule gives you roughly 3 degrees. It's just a, it's a nice number. And it's, it's actually the golden descent angle that we have in an airplane. In fact, even in, a, in an airliner, we reference this number all the time. And most approaches, which an approach being the, the final five to 10 mile segment to the airport, they all have a descent angle of roughly three degrees. Occasionally, it might be a 10th or two less than that, you know, maybe 2.6, 2.7, 2.8, but uh, for the most part, it's three degrees. Some airports will actually have a higher than normal uh, gradient down, uh, angle down, descent angle down to the field. Uh, a perfect example of that would be Aspen, Colorado. You have the, the Rocky Mountains all around you, and so in order to come in, I forget which runway it is, but the, one of the approaches has a six and a half degree slope. So that's more than double of the, the standard approach path that you would have. It's very steep, and, and again, that's all to avoid terrain. But like I said, at most airports, that, that three to one rule still works, and we apply it all the time in the airlines. But back to a Cessna, the nice thing about flying a, a Cessna is that you're going always roughly about 100 knots over the ground in, in calm wind conditions. And so when we apply this 3 to 1 rule, if we follow it correctly, it will yield the descent rate of roughly 500 feet per minute, which is just, it's a nice soft descent that we always used in, in the 172 and, and many other piston aircraft that go you know, roughly 100 knots over the ground, which is, which is most of them for the, those trainer aircraft. Things become a little different, however, once you start moving a bit faster. So you can still apply the three to one rule, but when you go faster, in order to fly that same three degree angle, you have to increase your rate of descent. 
So to compare from a small piston aircraft in the Embraer that I fly, when we're going oh, 300 to 400 knots over the ground in most cases, our descent rate is going to be anywhere from 1,500 to maybe 2,500 feet per minute. And this is totally acceptable. But as soon as we are going faster over the ground, we'll have to also increase our vertical speed, our, our rate of descent, in order to maintain the same three degree path. So how do we know how fast our descent angle is going to be? And now I'm kind of transitioning back to, to flying a jet because again, in a Cessna, it's your, your, rate, uh, your, your rate over the ground, your ground speed is pretty constant for the most part. And even if you are going faster, it's still very manageable. But flying a jet, you have to think about uh, this a little bit more. So how do we figure this out? More math. <laughs> and the, the equation to figure out your rate of descent is you take the altitude you need to lose and divide it by the time it will take to reach that target altitude. So it's kind of a two-step process. So the, the first thing we have to figure out is, is when we're gonna start our descent to, to get that distance, because once we have a distance, then we can get a time that it will take to reach that target altitude. So if we're still using the same three-degree example, one trick that we use flying a jet is that we wanna be at a comfortable altitude of about 10,000 feet, roughly 30 miles from the airport. This puts us just about at that three to one rule mark. I mean, technically, it would be actually 9,000 feet at 30 miles, but we use 10,000 feet because we usually have to level off in many cases in order to slow down to the 250 knot speed limit to fly below 10,000 feet. So we always just, just kind of tell ourselves, all right, our goal is to be 10,000 feet, roughly 30 miles from the airport. So we're, we're kind of uh, breaking the, the three to one rule into two chunks to make it a little easier. So we'll, we'll take that number, you know, that, that 30 miles at 10,000 feet, that'll be kind of the, the, the end goal as we get into the approach phase of the airport. But then we can start to think about, all right, when do we start our descent from our cruising altitude? So let's say that our, our cruising altitude is, is 35,000 feet. So therefore, to go from 35,000 feet down to 10,000 feet, again, that 10,000 feet at the 30 miles, that means we need to lose 25,000 feet. To figure out the distance that that will take to go from 35,000 down to, to 10,000, again, losing 25,000 feet, we know that with that three to one rule, we'll take, uh, take some zeros off and we'll multiply 25 times three, again, to, to make that three to one ratio, and that equals 75. So 75 miles is the distance it will take to go from 35,000 down to 10,000. Now that mark we made at 10,000 was 30 miles. So we'll have to add 30 plus 75 to get our total distance from the airport that we need to start our descent. So that brings us to 105 miles from the airport. So at 105 miles, that's when we would roughly want to start our descent in order to maintain a three degree path pretty much all the way down to the airport. So now that we have that number, what will our descent rate be and is it going to work? And asking the question of is it going to work really depends on the ground speed we're going at. So let's say we're going 400 knots over the ground, which is a fairly common speed to be going, at least in the, the Embraer that I fly. And we know that we are gonna take 75 miles to go from 35,000 feet down to 10,000 feet. So to get time, we just use that, the rate times time equals distance formula. We just change it around. So time will equal distance divided by our rate. So in this case, we'll take 75 
and divide it by 400. And that gives us 0 0.187, which corresponds to hours. So let's convert that to minutes, since we use feet per minute to determine our, our rate of descent. So we take uh, 0 0.1875, and we multiply that by 60. That gives us 11.25 minutes. So now that we have this beautiful number of uh, 11 and a quarter minutes, now we can take the 25,000 feet of altitude that we need to lose and divide it by 11.25 to get a number of just this wonderful number of 2,222 feet per minute in this random example that I chose. And as I mentioned earlier in my estimate, you know, going 300 to 400 knots over the ground means you'll go about 1,500 to 2,500 feet per minute on the descent using that three degree angle. So I, I wasn't too far off uh, now that we checked that math out. But what if we have a lovely tailwind giving us a ground speed of 600 knots? Now, all of a sudden, if you go 75 miles on that descent, again, going from 35,000 down to 10,000 feet, we, we established that the three degree angle, it will take 75 miles. Now that you're going 600 knots, it's only gonna take seven and a half minutes instead of 11 and a quarter. So now we'll need to descend at a rate of 3,333 feet per minute, which is quite a bit more. Can we do 3,300 feet per minute? Absolutely. But this is where things do get a little interesting, because can we do that while maintaining a reasonable airspeed? And the answer to that is no. So what is the remedy? Well, we have a couple of tricks up our sleeve. We can adjust the descent angle to be less than three degrees, which would then also decrease our rate of descent. But hold on, three degrees, it, it was this nice number to work with because we can use that three to one rule. And like I said earlier, it's, it's pretty close to three degrees being somewhere like 2.8 something to, you know, we, we can use that to accomplish some basic math. But now if we're going to do 2.7 degrees or 2.2 or degrees, I mean, what ratio is that? How, how are we going to figure that out without a calculator? I don't know. That's the answer. I, I don't know. I couldn't tell you <laughs> what that was without pulling out a calculator. And that's totally fine because who's going to be that good at math to be able to calculate uh, sines and cosines and to figure out all these angles in their head? You know, you're going to need a calculator for that. But instead of whipping out our old Texan 2 calculator from high school, we have our lovely onboard flight computer, the, the flight management system that will calculate all this for us, which is pretty awesome. We just have to input some new values. So one take... Um, so one technique I use is to adjust, like I said, adjust the descent angle so that the computer will calculate a new rate of descent. Uh, and, and usually what I, I adjust it to is, is have it not to exceed 2,500 feet per minute under normal operations. At 2,500 feet per minute, it is still possible to slightly slow down, maybe using some speed brakes, and it's, it's not uh, a rate of descent at which you, your airspeed will creep away from you uh, without, you know, your ability to, to slow down, or, or at least to maintain an airspeed. Uh, and then if we're expecting icing conditions, I will change the descent angle so that the descent rate will not exceed 2100 feet per minute. And the reason for this is because when we enter icing conditions, bleed air is needed to supply hot air to the de-icing systems. And bleed air, again, is, is borrowing some of the compressed air from the engine and, and feeding it through some tubes into the, the leading edge devices uh, of, of the wing, which will provide a bunch of hot air, which will melt off the ice. So if, if the de-icing system borrows some of that air from the, the compressor stage of the engine, 
the engine has to make up for that loss in performance because we're losing some of that compressed air. So it will increase the, the idle speed. It will, will add more uh, fuel and more air into the rest of the engine in order to, to offset that loss in performance. So that means that our idle speed will actually be higher than it normally is. And so even when our throttles are commanded totally idle to uh, allow a descent, they're actually producing more thrust than, than a typical idle. So maintaining a reasonable airspeed becomes much harder. And so by creating a descent angle to allow no more than uh, 2,500 feet per minute under our normal uh, situation, or if it's icing, usually I use roughly around a target of 2,100 feet per minute, then we can now maintain a reasonable airspeed while we are still descending. And what angle does that come out to be? It really depends on the ground speed. So sometimes I'll just I'll throw in a number like 2.5 degrees just to start things off. And then on one of the pages on our flight management system, I can see what it's going to calculate our rate of descent will be once we start from our top of descent, or our beginning of our descent uh, point on our flight plan. And it will it will spit out some numbers. So sometimes if I, again, I put in 2.5 degrees, and if, hey, it spits out 2,500 and I know we're not going to be in icing conditions, I might just leave it at that. If we're going to be in icing conditions and it's spitting out 3,100 feet per minute, I might try and adjust some numbers, you know, and, and make it a shallower descent. The only problem with this technique of changing the descent angle is that in order to have a, a shallower descent to, again, allow that slower rate of descent, we have to initiate this descent earlier because if we're changing it to a shallower angle, if you kind of picture a, a, a triangle, right, we are essentially changing the, the angle of the base of the triangle and the hypotenuse, right? And so if we're making the descent shallower, we are increasing the distance of the hypotenuse of the triangle. And that means that the, the base of the triangle has to increase in distance as well. And therefore, the base being our track over the ground, so to speak, we are, we are pulling that back. And so we have, to we have to start our descent earlier. And the, the three-to-one the three rule could become more like a, a two-to-one rule, where now we'll maybe descending 200 feet every mile instead of 300 feet. Um, and, and so we need to begin our descent sooner. And air traffic control is, is not always going to catch the moment that you want to start down. They don't know that, oh, you're having to deal with potential icing conditions and that you're, you're going to have to account for the, the increase in idle. You know, they're, they're not thinking about that because they're just trying to separate traffic, right? And so they'll usually judge the descent based on if there's any standard terminal arrival routes, uh, STARS for short, or, or if they're, they're, they kind of roughly estimate when the, the three-degree point is for us. So oftentimes, if we aren't given an early descent and we are plugging in a shallower descent angle, we have to request a lower altitude prior to giving them uh, or, or giving us an instructed descent. And sometimes that's challenging because the way that they separate traffic is sometimes based on the fact that we're going to maintain roughly a three-ish degree glide path uh, or descent angle, I should say. But sometimes, you know, even if we're making it a shallower descent angle and we request it, they're going to say, we can't do that because you have conflicting traffic ahead. So then things kind of get a little bit interesting. So again, ad adjusting the descent angle is, is kind of the main way we can manage our vertical profile regarding our descent angle. But in high tailwind situations, we, when we are instructed to follow a star, again being a, a standard terminal arrival route, 
many of these stars, these arrival routes, will have a crossing restriction for both speed and altitudes. And so we have to be careful about changing the descent angle too much from the start. I mean, from the beginning, we could say, oh yeah, we'll do a 1.9 degree descent angle, very shallow descent angle to have a nice, comfortable, and slow rate of descent. But then the, the FMS, the flight management system, will, will calculate the rate of descent only for that first segment. So the, from the top of descent to maybe our first crossing restriction, that's what we'll see in our window to, to estimate our rate of descent. But later down the line, if there are some at or below altitudes that we have to meet, the descent angle will actually be changed in the flight management system in order to comply with some of those crossing restrictions. So if we only change the descent angle, it would initially help, but then we could have descent angles maybe in excess of four degrees uh, or maybe four and a half degrees, and that becomes way too steep to maintain a, a reasonable airspeed. So the other trick that we have in descent planning is creating level off fixes. And these are fixes we add in addition to the fixes that are already published on the arrival to allow us a, kind of a quick chance to slow down prior to the next speed restriction. Sometimes the arrivals are, are simple with very few step down fixes or, or given the descent angle and, and the ground speed, it's all possible to just leave in that three degree and, and or maybe whatever angle we set in the FMS, but other times we need to, to create these level off fixes. So we'll plug them into the, the FMS. And we typically use the rule that it will take the plane roughly one mile to slow down 10 knots, at least without the use of any speed brakes. So if we're going 300 knots on the arrival and need to hit a 250 knot speed restriction at a fix, or, or maybe we've, we've created a fix because uh, we're going to pass through 10,000 feet and, and we need to be at or below 250 knots, 10,000 feet, we need to go from 300 to 250, so we need to lose 50 knots. So 50 divided by the 10 rule, that, that just gives us five. And so we'll create a fix five miles prior to the fix that, that we had already in there in order to create this level off. And this is a, a nice comfy level off uh, with little to, to no need for speed brakes and makes for a, a smoother ride. And does it always work out? Certainly not. Uh, the, the one time this method of, of creating level offs becomes difficult is particularly on shorter legs. I mean, if we're going from LaGuardia or, or New York's Kennedy to, to Boston during the cold front season, uh, this is a perfect example where it becomes very difficult because with a hefty tailwind, we'll be at cruise for all of 10 minutes or less before the arrival begins. And so this leaves us very little time to set up the approach, collect all of our landing data, make announcements, all while flying the airplane and talking on the radio. So things get quite a bit busy uh, up on those shorter legs, but it, it definitely keeps you on your toes. And I actually kind of enjoy it. Uh, it's, it's fun to properly plan out descent and make it perfect, but, but oftentimes air traffic control will slow you down anyways, or maybe start your descent early which renders all that descent planning moot. So when we have these kind of quick and, and busy flights and we have many panic modes with many things going on uh, in, in terms of you know gnarly tailwinds, icing conditions, speed and altitude restrictions to comply with, and maybe a, a system is going is, has malfunctioned, uh, or maybe uh, you know there's there's a passenger sick in the back or something. I mean, all these things can get thrown at us and distract us from spending the time to properly plan the descent 
or or just maybe not leaving us enough time not 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 to say distracting us from flying but but sometimes we just don't have the time in order to properly plan uh, a descent so you know, what's the remedy to that? Well, sometimes you just have to rip open the speed brakes or pull the boards, as we say, in order to to make some crossing restrictions. And that, of course, will decrease the passenger comfort in the back, particularly if you are aft of the wings, uh, because those speed brakes are, of course, mounted on the wings. You're going to feel those vibrations more violently after the wing, and particularly in the very tail, because the air gets disrupted that's what the speed brakes are doing. They're they're splitting the air. They're they're diverting the air from smoothly flowing over the wings. It's creating these little eddies of of turbulent airflow, and that turbulent airflow then will hit the horizontal stabilizer. So if you're sitting in the very back of the plane, those little turbulent vortices will start to absolutely shake the tail and causes for quite a bumpy ride. So we try our best to avoid that, but sometimes there's no way we can avoid it because we have to meet some speed restrictions and crossing altitude restrictions because, well, it has to do with traffic separation. Uh, a lot of busier airspaces have these arrival routes in order to sequence aircraft in, and so a lot of times you, you have to meet these speed restrictions. Other times, they will say, air traffic control might say, delete speed restrictions after such and such fix or, or resume published speeds after this fix, and that allows us to throw that descent planning out the window and keep coming in fast and, until we need to meet a, a speed restriction later on. But anyway, like I said, I mean, there's a lot of math involved. And although we can use our fancy computers, our flight management system to, to aid us in this descent planning, uh, like, like changing our descent angles or, or putting in level off fixes, it's still an, important to, to revisit the basics of, of descent calculations because you, you never know when you might suffer a computer malfunction. Uh, and even if that happens, every pilot should be able to whip up some quick math uh, and, and be able to, to get the plane down smoothly without needing delayed vectors or, or possibly running dangerously low on fuel because you're getting vectored far off your course. And, and not to mention, not every aircraft has the, the fancy equipment that the Embraer jets have. Uh, one, one of the really nice tools we have on, on our instrument display is the vertical profile page. And this shows us a, a vertical view of our route. And it's, it's excellent for helping us visualize what the descent will look like. And, and not every jet has that. And I'm, I'm going to be quite sad when I leave that behind when, when transitioning to a, a different aircraft because unfortunately the Embraer is getting phased out. But like I said, I mean, knowing the mathematical techniques to properly plan a descent is, is so key because you don't always have the, uh, the fancy flight management systems to help you. And so understanding that basic three to one rule that we learn back in our private pilot training carries through all the way to flying a jet as well. So there you have it. That pretty much wraps things up for this episode. I know it was quite technical and involved a lot of math, but hopefully it, it gives you a little glimpse of what it's like to plan our descents to get you to your destination. Uh, there, there's a lot that goes into it, and, and although flying a jet is pretty easy when it's just hands-on flying, it's all the decision-making and all the, these little things like calculating a descent, and it's, it's pretty cool. I actually I ran into... Uh, an old high school teacher of mine, and he asked me if there was any geometry involved. You know, do pilots do any calculations? You know, 
Because remember, you know, years ago, I, I taught you the geometry class. And did you carry that with you? Absolutely. Use it every time I fly. So it's, it's really cool that to kind of to correlate some of the things you learn even in, in middle school and, and, and in high school, that that carries through to the real world. Uh, it's, it's not often that a lot of people will say that they use geometry in work. Uh, and, and I'm pretty sure a lot of kids in school will say that geometry is completely useless. And while at the time of, of studying geometry, it might seem useless, there's, there's so many applications for it, this being one of them with descent planning. So it's pretty exciting. So to any of my younger listeners out there who are perhaps in high school right now uh, or going through a geometry class and you're trying to figure out what is the use of it, and of course, if you don't understand the use of it, you are less motivated to get any of the work done and to try and understand it better. Well, guess what? If you want to fly an aircraft, you're going to need to know some geometry. And it's 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 actually pretty exciting. Uh, I, I will say that back in high school, math wasn't really that interesting to me. I was okay at it, and I was kind of your average student. But now that I'm flying airplanes, it's it's so involved, and I actually really enjoy this kind of math. It's really fun to just, you know, creating this this episode even... I just took a little scratch piece of paper to just kind of whip up some of the examples that, that I uh, mentioned earlier. And it, it's just really fun. I find that really, really fun, really engaging to, to jot some notes down and to figure out some quick mental math. And, and it keeps you sharp, keeps you on your toes. Because again, even though we have the fancy flight management system that will calculate all this for us, it's really good to, to know how to do it manually in the event that that system fails or, or you know, you can apply it to another aircraft. Because like I said, the Embraer is getting phased out. I'm going to have to switch off of that aircraft. And uh, that means I will be missing some of those key tools. Most jets will still have that descent angle that you can change, but you don't have that vertical profile. And you have to start thinking of that three to one rule a little bit more often than you do in the Embraer. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode of Clear for Takeoff. I might need to take one week off to allow some time to set up my new recording studio, but once that is done, I'll get right back to it. It's possible I can get everything all squared away between now and then, but I think I do need to take about one week just to sort things out. And it also depends on how much I fly. If I get used, uh, again, I'm on reserve right now, so if I get used, you know, I won't have the time in order to record another episode. But... I will be getting back to it nonetheless. Anyway, thank you so much for tuning in. I'll be back next time, and until then, as always, fly safe. Mm-hmm.